Thank you so much, everybody. You could be seated. Oh, get ready. Here we go. We're going to have some fun tonight. It's a sin to be boring, and we're not going to be anything but that. I can't wait to share. Sometimes you preach because it's time to. Sometimes you preach because you actually have something to say. And tonight and tomorrow night, I actually have something to say. It's been so good being with you guys. And um, that, that interns roundtable that, that Pastor Chris was referencing, I'm so thankful for it because it was impromptu. Um, but that created, uh, so, so the impromptu talk I gave them uh, then became another impromptu talk today that I I stood on a stage. I I don't think I've ever done this. I've never stood up having not prepared. And I, and I actually, I I qualified it by saying I might not make it the whole 40 minutes, but y'all won't care. And then it went right on it. And, um, and now I'm going to get that recording and make a talk that I reckon should go around the world after that, because it just went, it went well enough. So, so, so you guys without knowing it have actually given me more possibilities, uh, for the future. And that's what happens when you're with symbiotic friends who are learners. That's what happens when we journey together. That's what happens when we start conversations. Um, tonight, if you could do me a favor afterwards, if you could stop by our table and, uh, pick up something, CDs, DVDs, USBs, direct downloads. That's how we support our orphanages and our rescue home. The only thing I would ask you is that if you know you're not going to get anything, God bless you. If you know you are, if you could do it quickly, just simply because Robin, to be kind, stayed around to help tonight and she's got to drive back to Brisbane after this is over. So the fulfillment of scripture is to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And so the only thing I would ask you to do is, is to be kind to her by being quick about it. All right. So that, that'd be, that'd be fantastic. All right. I want to talk to you about the Bible. Sounds like a pretty good topic. I want to I want to talk about Bible. Let me tell you my goal uh, for Tuesday night. By the time we leave here tomorrow night, my goal is that you're more in love with Jesus than you are tonight. That you're more in love with Scripture than you are tonight. That Jesus gets bigger. The cross works better. The resurrection is central, and Scriptures are bigger, not smaller. I love the Bible. If that's not obvious to you, I've given my whole life to studying it. I've given my whole life to communicating it in compelling ways. And because of that, it grieves my very soul when people ruin it. I hate when people speak of the Bible in such a way that they ruin it. One of the top stumbling blocks to faith in Jesus today is the Bible. And that shouldn't be. And here's what I mean by that. Uh, the great magician, Penn Gillette, grew up in a Christian home. He is now one of the world's most famous atheists. And they asked him, how did you grow up in a Christian home and then become an atheist? And he said, and I quote, I read the Bible cover to cover because I wanted to take it serious. By Genesis chapter 6, I thought I was an atheist. By Exodus 21, I knew I was. And then I read it to the end to give it a chance to change gears, and it didn't. He said, so I became an atheist because I read the Bible. And I went to my pastor to ask questions about it. And he said, you don't question God, son. And I just figured anything that couldn't undergo the scrutiny of questions isn't worth believing in. That's what I want to combat. I want to recapture the beauty of Scripture. I want Scripture to be bigger, not smaller, because I find the Bible the most compelling collection of books ever put together in the history of the world. I find it moving. I find it inspiring. I find it energy. I find that it brings us back. I find that the Bible is not just a story. The Bible is our story, right? And if we find ourselves in it, that that is it. But, but here's the thing, right? It's not hard to ruin the Bible. Here's all you have to do. If, you, if your goal is to ruin Scripture, here's all you got to do. Here's all you got to do. Speak of it statically. That's all you got to do. Speak of it statically. Use words like God wrote it. God doesn't change. 
Well, if God wrote it, which by the way, that has never, ever, once, ever been the Christian belief that God physically wrote the Bible. If God wrote it and God doesn't change, then the same things that were applicable at certain times in history should still be applicable today. And that sounds insane. People say, oh, God, and I, and I, let me be clear about this. I know what you mean. I know what you're getting at. I do. I do. But saying it that way does not help scripture. It hurts scripture. It doesn't help the situation. Like people say, people say, oh, God wrote the Bible. Which part? Which part? The love your neighbor as yourself part? Well, that's all right. But, but, but what about Exodus 21 where it says, if you need to beat a slave for laziness, that's okay. So long as it takes him more than a day to die from the beating. But if he dies within a day, now that's murder. <laughs> that one? Or, or how, about, how, how about we should put to death people who don't take Saturday off? Oh, anybody for that one? Or, or how about Ecclesiastes 3 that says there's no such thing as heaven or hell. When we die, we just go back to dirt like an animal. How about that one? Or what about the part in Corinthians that says women should shut their flipping mouths in church? <laughs> Can I get an amen? That one? See, we've got to be very careful when we say, oh, you know, we... we or or what, about, what about the part that says my sister-in-law should be forced to marry me if my brother dies? Are we actually for that? So, so when, we say, when, we, when we say, when we say, man... Man, God wrote the Bible. What we're trying to do is give the Bible more of a position of strength. And I'm here to tell you, the Bible doesn't need you to do that. Because, because when we do that, we box the Bible in to a box that does, it never was intended to fit in. And so what I want to do is I want to recapture the beauty of Scripture by giving us a more profound way to talk about it and a more profound way to read it. A, 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 way, a, a way that when your 24-year-old comes home and asks you questions about it, you don't have to feel threatened about the whole thing. It's actually okay to wrestle with certain things that don't make sense. It's, it's, it's actually okay not to run from it or avoid it or to do intellectual hula hoops so we can avoid it. It's, it's actually okay not to do that. All right? There's a better way. And if, you're, if, you'll give me, if you'll give me a couple nights here, I promise you when we get to the end of this, there's going to be some aha moments that is going to make the Bible more beautiful than ever before because I love it. So let's start with a couple affirmations. If you could bring that first slide up for me. A couple of affirmations. One, the Bible's fully inspired. So let's get that out the way right, right up from the get-go. I believe that. You believe that. Your pastors believe that. Your movement affirms that. And nothing we're going to say in the next two nights is a challenge to the Bible's inspiration. We all affirm that. Shane Willard affirms it. You affirm it. Your movement affirms it. Your pastor affirms it. And nothing is drawing that into question. So you can lower that guard a bit, okay? The Bible's fully inspired. And, and if you need, if you need, let's do a second affirmation. Secondly, the Bible is inerrant as long as it's properly interpreted within the genre it's written in. Okay? You, you, can't, you can't interpret a poem as if it's a history book and expect to be right about it. You, you can't interpret something, you, you can't interpret a parable as a historical narrative and, and expect to be right about it. You have to interpret scripture within the genre it was written in. So, we fully affirm the Bible's inspired, and we fully affirm that within proper interpretation, it knows what it's talking about, okay? But let's talk about what inspiration is, and let's talk about what inspiration is not. Inspiration is not dictation. It's not God writing it, nor is it Him dictating it. Like, it's, it's not like God wrote the Bible with a pen, nor is it Him whispering it from heaven, like, 
And Moses is like, all right, that sounds crazy. If you need to beat a slave for laziness, that's okay as long as it takes them longer than a day to die. No, 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 come on. So the, the Bible's not written by God, nor is it dictated by God. Like, the Bible's inspired. It's inspired. Now, what does inspiration mean? And what does it not mean? So, so the word inspire comes from the Latin root spire. It, it means to breathe. Uh, so any relation to that word. So respiration is to breathe in and out. And medically, if something falls in my lungs and I can't breathe, they might say, I'm aspirating. It means I can't breathe. So, so to inspire means to breathe into something. To expire means to pull breath out of something or to lose your breath. In the ancient world, they didn't say someone died. They said they expired. It it was literally so primitive that it was like, hey, Billy, did you see that? He breathed out and didn't breathe in again. He lost his breath. He has expired. Now, we would say death. They would just simply, oh, he lost his breath. Isn't that something? When you breathe out and don't breathe in, that's expiration, right? So inspired. So when, when the scripture says that scripture is inspired, it doesn't mean God wrote it, nor does it mean God dictated it. It means a person wrote it and God looked at what they wrote and thought that needs life. I'm going to give that life by breathing into it because... When God breathes into something, that's when life happens. Think about it. What's, what's the first thing in Scripture God breathed on? Dirt. And what happened? You and me. God breathed on dirt. And men and women were formed. We are what happens when God's breath hits dirt. And what happens? What happens? As long as we breathe in and out. We are held together by God's name. We are living, breathing dirt clods. And as long, (laughs) and as long as we continue to breathe in and out, we remain inspired dirt clods. When we quit breathing, what do we become? Normal dirt clods. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. So as long as you're inspired by God, you are living, breathing, inspired dirt. When you lose your breath, you are expired dirt or normal dirt. Now follow me here. If you are inspired dirt, what does that make you? It makes you holy dirt. Everything about your life is holy because it is held together by something holy. There's something holy and mysterious and special about just being here. If you are inspired dirt, that makes you holy dirt. And what does that make you? That makes you holy ground. Sometimes we're looking for the next piece of holy ground, but the holy ground is in us. Is the Bible inspired? You better believe it is. Are you inspired? You better believe you are. And the hope for the world is not more Bibles in every hotel room as if people know what to do with that anyway. The hope for the world is Christians living inspired. One writer said it this way, let your life be the epistle for all to read. (laughs) Is the Bible dictated? No. Is it written? No. Is it inspired? Yes. But it's also very complex. So as much as the Bible's inspired, It's incredibly complex, and it should be 
40 different authors over 1,500 years, 66 books, of course it's going to be complex. Through multiple genres and periods and biases and points and and movements, of course it's going to be complex. So the Bible's not one book. The Bible's 66 books put together in one, written by 40 people over 1,500 years. Of course it's going to be complex. It's going to be incredibly complex. So, so a couple things about the complexities. Um, in, the, in the Bible, you're going to find at times God's... Next slide. You're, you're going to find in, in, at times God speaking. You'll find that. Of course. It's the Bible. God speaks in it. Of course you will. And there's moments of that. There's serious moments of that. But you also find people thinking God is speaking when he isn't. And that's recorded as well. And they're quite, the Bible's quite refreshingly honest about when people miss it. It's amazing, really. Like, like there's this one time in the books of Kings where it says, it says, and God told David to take a census. God told David to take a census. But then in the book of Chronicles, it says, and Satan told David to take a census. And it's talking about the same census. Now, what do we do with that? Is this like the one time in history God and Satan agreed and they were both saying the same thing? Or, or, or is something else going on? Is the Bible writers doing something far more profound than what's on the surface? And understanding the history of both the books of Kings and the books of Chronicles will help us understand what exactly is going on there. Because sometimes the Bible is telling you what God did. Sometimes the Bible's just telling you what happened. And a good hermeneutic is one that, that looks at both of those things and delineates it and looks at it for the beauty that it is. So sometimes you find God speaking. Sometimes you find people thinking he is. Sometimes you find people curse when God is blessing. You find that too. A good example of that is right early in the story. Genesis chapter 9 verse 1. And God blessed all of Noah's sons. God blessed. God blessed all of all. God blessed all of Noah's sons and their descendants. Well, that sounds like everyone. God blessed all of Noah's sons and their descendants. Genesis 9, verse 7. And God blessed all of Noah's sons and their descendants. Genesis chapter 9, verse 17. And God blessed all of Noah's sons. Three times, 17 verses. It's a pattern. God is blessing people. God blessed all of Noah's sons and their descendants. Genesis 9, verse 24, seven verses later. And Noah cursed Ham and all of his descendants. So in that story, you have Noah refusing to buy in to God's blessing over the whole line, and he chooses to curse. Why? Because he was irritated, drunk, and hung over. It was a very basic thing. It says that Noah got so drunk, he got naked and didn't remember it. Now, there are levels to drunk, right? There is slightly relaxed. Then after that, there's something called, I think I'm buzzed. Then there is, I'm actually buzzed. Then there's, yep. I'm drunk. Then after that, there's something called off your face. Somewhere way past that is, I don't remember getting naked. Now, (laughs) if you've ever been, I don't remember getting naked drunk, here's the thing. What's the next morning like? It's terrible. We have a name for it. It's called a hangover. It's either a medical condition or a trilogy of horrible movies. Either way, right? (laughs) So Noah wakes up in a drunk, 
irritated, hungover stupor in a day with no Nurofen, no paracetamol, no aspirin, no nothing. He just had to find the closest ginger root and gnaw on it till he felt better, right? <laughs> and he wakes up in this drunk, angry, hungover, irritated stupor. And he realizes that one of his sons had uncovered his nakedness and laughed at him. And he chooses to curse even though God had clearly blessed. And here's the problem with that. If we, if we lead with the notion that God approves of everything in the Bible, instead of no, sometimes the Bible is just accurately telling us what happened. Then we could come to the conclusion then that God cursed Ham. But if you read the story, God didn't curse Ham. Noah cursed Ham. God went out of his way to keep repeating himself. I bless all of these people. I bless all of these people. I blessed all of these people. Noah cursed Ham. And it affected history for thousands of years. Because Ham's firstborn son was Canaan. And Canaan's firstborn son was Sidon. And so the Sidonites became the cursed people. Even in Jesus' day, remember it says there was a Sidonite woman who showed up and she says, I know because I'm cursed, I'm not allowed at your table, but don't even dogs get crumbs? And Jesus is like, okay, that's real faith, right? That is real faith. Remember Jesus blesses the Sidonites, even though the scriptures cursed the Sidonites and they wanted to throw him off of a cliff. Why? Because Jesus loves people more than the rules. That's why. This drastically affected America. In in the South, in America, Christian pastors use Genesis chapter 9 to justify the gross mistreatment of African Americans in the South. Here's how they use the Bible to justify it. God cursed Ham. Ham ended up in Ethiopia. Ethiopia is full of black people. All black people are cursed. If God cursed black people, then who are we to bless them? That's how the logic went. Do you know what that's called? That's called Homer Simpson logic. First of all, (laughs) God didn't curse him. Noah cursed him. You can't read the Bible as if God approved of all this. Sometimes the Bible is just accurately recording a story of something that happened. And it's a beautiful story when you see it in its whole. When you see what's going on in the whole instead of one part. Sometimes people act with heroic obedience. That happens too. David and Goliath. These are the stories we like to tell our children. Sometimes people act with heartbreaking disobedience. And the the Bible tells those stories clearly as well. I mean, either the Bible's authentic or or the Bible had the worst PR people ever. Right? One of the key leaders of the first century church was a guy named Peter. And all four gospels spend half their time talking about his mistakes. Like, if you were the writers of one of the four, first four Gospels, wouldn't your PR person be saying, do you realize he's one of the leaders now? We should probably keep his failures on the down low. But they didn't. They were very clear. They, why? Why? Because it's just like the Bible is a story, but it's also your story. And in your story, your successes belong and your failures belong. And to tell your stories with only your successes without some sort of acknowledgement of where we got it wrong cheapens the, cheapens the successes. Jesus is less beautiful unless you have the backdrop of there was a day they thought you had to kill animals. And then they thought you had to do this to please God. And then they thought you had to do that to please God. Oh, and then they thought you had to cut an animal a certain way. And then they did this. And then Jesus comes along and says, what if you didn't have to do anything to please God anymore? The The good news of that is only made better by the backdrop that there was a day they thought primitively. And so in the Bible, we get that whole story, but not a static record of what God is. 
You, you see tragic atrocities like Sodom and Jephthah. I, I have to do, I don't have to, I, I, I get the opportunity, excuse me, to do Q&As all over the world with people under 30. And essentially the pastors go, whatever your problem is with the Bible, bring it to this guy, right? And, 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 and I've, I've only heard one question in the whole world yet that I wasn't ready for, because all I did was I Googled horrible things in the Bible. <laughs> because that's all they're doing, right? That's all they're doing. They're, they're Googling Bible contradictions, Bible errors, Bible verses your mother hopes you never see, you know. They're Googling these things. And all I did was memorize the list. And surprise, surprise, that's what comes up, right? And, and so somebody says, how can you serve a God that was okay with the forced homosexual rape of young boys, you know? And I'm going, what are you, t- where are you getting that? Well, there's a story in there about Sodom and this guy was going to his, give his daughters and his children to these things, right? right? And, and, and that, made, that made the cut, man. That made the cut into the Bible. How could you ever serve a God that was okay with that? And I'm like, just because it made it into the story doesn't mean God is okay with everything in the story. Sometimes there are stories in there that are in there to tell the whole story, to give backdrop as to how well the world is going compared to what it used to be like because of the work of God in the world. Sometimes the Bible's doing that. Sometimes there's God's behavioral plan, you know. But even that can be a little, like, like sometimes because life is situational, the Bible can be. I'll give you an example. In, in Proverbs 26, verse 4, it says, if a fool addresses you, don't even answer back. You'll look like a fool too. Proverbs 26, verse 5 says, if a fool addresses you, answer him bluntly to reveal his folly. <laughs> They're one verse apart. But isn't that true to life? Sometimes a fool needs to be confronted. Sometimes the smartest thing to do is to just walk away. And instead of looking for right and wrong every time, if we searched wisdom, that would be a much better way to live. And so we got, we got to look at it that way. Sometimes it's that. So sometimes we have descriptions of events God was happy about. Sometimes. So sometimes there's a story that's like, man, that was awesome. Sometimes you read a story in there and it's like tragic. Sometimes you read a poem of great faith. Sometimes you read a poem in the Psalms and it's of great despair, wondering where God is. Sometimes, and isn't that true of your life? Is your life always on the up? Or or do we have to also come to grips with there are times that we find God in the absence as much as we do in the confidence of the presence. Like even at the cross, the central cry of the cross was not forgive them. The central cry of the cross was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And to truly identify with the Christ on the cross, we have to have profound trust in the perceived absence as much as we do in confidence in the profound presence. You find both those in that story. You find both those in the Bible. Why? Because you find those those in your life and in my life. This isn't just something that happened. This is a story about me and you and where we are now. In the Bible, you also find descriptions of events that just happened. Sometimes God was happy. Sometimes it's like, well, that just happened. Let's be honest about it. That just happened. Sometimes there's parables and fictional stories to make a moral life point or explain the meaning of an event. Like, let me, let, let me be clear about this. Some of the Bible is fiction. And that doesn't cheapen the Bible. It's interpreting the Bible according to the genre the original author intended to write it in. If Jesus told a parable, a parable was fiction. You can't interpret a parable as if it's literal. You can't interpret, you can't interpret apocalyptic literature as if it's literal. You can't read Revelation looking for the literalness of it. 
Like it, it just would make no sense. It's obvious, and, and it's obviously written in apocalyptic literature, a symbolic form. Otherwise, you'll go nuts. Like, 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 who's the Shane? Who do you think the Antichrist is? And da 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 da. And you're thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute. Are you are you reading this literally? Really? Like, like, do you actually think at the end of days there's going to be a great whore coming down on a horse? God, I hope not. Because let's just be honest, there's nothing, frankly, scarier than a whore on a horse. You imagine that? You can't interpret something written symbolic as if it's literal. Makes us look like idiots. Sometimes there's parables. Sometimes there's fiction. Sometimes there's apocalyptic literature. Sometimes there's symbolic. Sometimes it's literal. Sometimes it's concrete. Sometimes it's metaphorical. Sometimes it's abstract. And the Bible is beautiful enough to contain it all. Uh, and sometimes there's reference to other tribal literature. That shouldn't surprise us. That sometimes the writers of the Bible quoted other authors. We do that all the time. Paul, Paul quoted the great Christian prophet Epimenides three times in his letters. That doesn't mean it's less inspired. As if something has to be totally original to be inspired by God. Are you kidding me? shouldn't surprise us at all that the first 11 chapters of Genesis also appear in the Epic of Atherhasis, the Epic of Gilgamesh, and the Enuma Elish, also the origins of Egypt. That, that, that Moses, who happened to grow up in Egypt, would use common understanding of other literature to make a point should be common sense. Sometimes the Bible does that. Sometimes the Bible's completely original. Sometimes the authors in the Bible are quoting something everybody else would have known about. Sometimes that happened. Or let's say it this way. Sometimes you find authentic expressions of where people were at at the time it was written. Sometimes you find that. You can't read it statically, though. Listen, you don't hear nothing else I say. If you want to ruin the Bible, speak of it statically. The Bible's not a static record of God. The Bible is a dynamic, progressive, moving revelation uh, that God inspired, leading to the final revelation of God in the risen Christ. The Bible is the Word of God, but the final Word of God's a person. It's the risen Christ. And everything in this inspired word of God is pointing to the final word of God in the risen Christ. And so what you find along the way is that people who lived earlier had different understandings of God than people who lived later. And that should be Captain Obvious. Like Abraham's understanding of God was fundamentally different than Moses's. Like Abraham, here was Abraham's idea, ready? Hey, hey guys, hey. Hey, guess what? I don't think we have to kill children anymore. I think we can kill animals instead. Now, when you're the first person to get the idea, hey, instead of killing children to please God, let's kill animals. Is that a good move or a bad move? Oh my goodness, don't think too hard about that, right? Like, oh, I don't know. What are you talking about? Hey, I have an idea. Let's not kill children anymore. Let's kill animals. Is that a good move or a bad move? That's a really good flipping move. Is that inspired? You better believe it's inspired. Is that the word of God? You better believe it is. Is it the final word of God? No. The final word of God's the risen Christ. But that was a good leap in the right direction. Oh, yeah. Moses comes along 400 years later and he goes, hey, guys, I got this idea. Instead of killing infinite animals... We could have a lot more to eat if we limited animal sacrifice. So let's do this. Let's do one sacrifice per family per year. Now, when you're the first guy to go, 
Let's limit animal sacrifice so we have more food to eat. Let's do one sacrifice per family for a year. Is that a word from God? Yes. Is that a good move or a bad move? Really good flipping move. Is that inspired? You better believe that's inspired. Is that a word from God? Yes. Is that the final word of God? No. The final word of God's the risen Christ. That's a giant move in the right direction. Right? And later a guy named Micah comes along. Yeah. He says, actually, I don't think we should sacrifice. I think it's kind of dumb. What kind of God hates you one minute, you kill an animal, he loves you the next? That doesn't sound safe. I think that's a good move. He says, but what does, because the question is, if, if I say, let's stop sacrificing, the question would be what? Well, then what does the Lord require of us? Right? And he says, what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with God. Is that a good move or a bad move? Really good move. Is that inspired? You better believe it is. Is that a word from God? Absolutely. Is that the final word of God? No, the final word of God's the risen Christ. But that's a giant move in the right direction. And what makes Micah's revelation so beautiful is it's on the backdrop of Moses's. And what makes Moses's revelation so beautiful is it's on the backdrop of Abraham's. And what makes Jesus's revelation so beautiful is that there was ever a moment that this kind of stuff existed. And that makes, some would call that good news. Sometimes you find people's opinions for where they were at. I'll give you an example. In Psalm 104, it says this. The Lord our God, he's the great creator. He put the earth in its place and now the earth never moves. Is that literally true? Oh, please don't think too hard about that. Is the earth stationary? No, it's moving in every conceivable way. It's moving this way, this way, and this way. Right? He says, hey, the earth never moves. And if you Google Bible errors, hit number three is the Bible can't be true because it clearly says the earth is stationary when it's not. The reason I know this is I've been asked that in almost every Q&A I do around the world. A lot of these things I'm bringing up are just stuff I'm hearing from your children. That's all. That's all. So is the... Is the Bible wrong? Does the Bible have an error in it? I mean, the earth, the, earth does, the earth does move and the Bible says it doesn't. Is that an error? Well, of course not. When David wrote that psalm, was he writing a science book? No, he was writing, he's an ancient caveman who's sitting on the side of a mountain in awe of creation, despite of his lack of understanding of how physical science works. He's not writing a science book. He's writing a song of awe, despite his lack of understanding about it. And that's inspiring. And, And by the way, this drastically affected Galileo's life. In 1633, Galileo went to the church and he said, hey guys, I'm trying to save you some bumps here. You have to reinterpret the, like, the, the, the earth is moving. We can prove it because of X, Y, Z. The earth's moving. 1633. The church was like, no! You'll recant that. Or you'll go to hell. He said, whatever, bro. I'm just telling you. <laughs> the earth is moving. They actually tried to torture that idea out of him. They said, the Bible clearly says it doesn't move, and you're saying it does. You're wrong. Right? He says, guys, I'm just telling you, trying to save you some bumps here. Earth moving. They said, they said, recant that or you'll go to hell. He said, look, I'm telling you, it's just moving. Since 1633, they put Galileo in hell. 
Anybody know when they let him out? <laughs> 1992. 1992, the descendants of Galileo went to the church and said, look, it turns out he was right. Um, can we rethink his eternal destination? And so they rethought it and they were like, you know what, he's right. And so they absolved him and let him out of hell, which, which in and of itself is comical. Excuse me, can we have Galileo back? You know? <laughs> Galileo comes up out of hell all jacked up. It's like, man, I'm glad y'all figured that out. It's hot as hell down there. Sometimes, sometimes the Bible records people's observations, right? Like, like there's a, there is a Bible verse that says Jesus is full of Beelzebub. And if you quote that, like that's true. Is that true? No, it is true that somebody said it though. And so you got to interpret it that way. You, you have people's observations. There's, there's a Bible verse that says he's out of his mind. There's a Bible verse that says this, right? You, you, also, you also have different opinions for different authors, and that's okay as well. If, if, the Bible, if the Bible makes it through 1,500 years with 40 authors without one difference of opinion, that doesn't help the Bible, that hurts it. That would be evidence for collusion. That would be evidence for a bigger problem, right? Like, if, if you want to, ev- okay, if you're like, Shane, give me an example of that one. Okay, no problem. Right. Is the Bible for or against marriage. What depends on who you read. Solomon was really for it. (laughs) Solomon was like, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. (laughs) Paul said, he who marries does not sin, but he signed up for a life of pain. What's the Bible say about marriage? It depends. Solomon's like, marriage, let's do it. A lot. (laughs) Paul's like, please make it your last decision. So, So what do we do with this beautifully complex, inspired series and library of books? What do we do? How do we read it? How do we go about it. So if all this is true, why is the Bible under attack? And, and in traveling the world, every objection I've heard to the scripture, I can dumb it down to three objections. There are three objections that have become really problematic. The first one is static appropriation. Static appropriation. The second one is genre confusion. And the third one is a lack of consideration of historical arc. So there's static appropriation, there's genre confusion, and then there's lack of understanding of historical arcs. Let me explain all three quickly, because we're going to spend tomorrow night entirely on, his, on, on history and genre. Static appropriation is the thought that because God wrote it and God doesn't change, then everything carries equal weight all the way through it. And it puts the Bible in untenable positions about stuff that in our day sounds nuts. It sounds crazy, like needing to beat a slave for laziness. It's okay. Like that sounds like putting people to death for not taking Saturday off or, 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 or forcing my sister-in-law to marry me if my brother dies. Static appropriation is a real problem. And if you want to ruin the Bible, speak of it in static terms. Okay. We're going to talk about more about that tomorrow. The second one, and I would say 80% of it is genre confusion. 
It's people who don't understand the Bible has all these different genres, so they read it all as one type of genre. So they either, sometimes the liberals read it all as metaphor and poetry. Or, or, or the real fundamentalists read it all as literal. And you're like, wait, literal, really? Like, like, I get it if it was meant to be literal, but that obviously is a poem. And so genre confusion creates a real problem when we interpret something that was intended by the original author to be written a certain way. And then we interpret it another way. And then lack of understanding of historical art means two things. One is there tends to be a story underneath the story that makes the stories in the Bible make more sense. There almost always is a history story underneath what we're reading that gives more insight to it. So there's that. The other thing is, is that when we read the scripture, we have to consider, was this written by someone in this era of understanding or in this era of understanding or in this era of understanding? It would stand to reason. You, you would have to do intellectual hula hoops to pretend that whoever wrote Hebrews is agreeing with Moses. No way. He's actually pointing out where that needed to get better and better and better and better and better. You can't make it static and make those two things align. They weren't intended to. The writer of Hebrews had a revelation of the risen Christ. It would fundamentally make sense that his understanding of grace and sacrifice and blood would be fundamentally different than a more primitive understanding of Abraham and Moses. And that makes it beautiful, not unbeautiful. Which leads me to this. The reason I started, the reason I wrote this talk and the one tomorrow, if you haven't figured it out, it's part one, part two. Okay. I was doing a Q&A in Auckland and this girl came up to the front. You got to picture this. It was a really full room, microphone there, microphone there. And they said, they opened the mics up, you know. And so this girl comes up and as nicely and calmly and authentically as she could, she said, Pastor Shane, thank you so much. You've meant a lot to my life. I said, thank you. She said, I really need your help though. I said, I'll try. She said, "Um, I want you to know I'm a fully devoted follower of Jesus. I said, okay, great. She said, but I'm positive I don't want to go to heaven when I die. I said, that's okay. You don't have to go to heaven if you don't want to. She said, she said, the reason is, is I think Jesus is awesome, but I think God is insane. And I said, go on. She held up a Bible and she said, this is God's word, right? I said, yes. She said, God wrote it, right? Never say yes to that. I said, go on. She said, this is God's word. Yes, God wrote it, right? Go on. And God doesn't change, right? I said, no, God doesn't change. She said, could you please help me? She said, can I read something to you out of something God wrote? Um, And my concern is, is that if God wrote it and God doesn't change, then God would still be like this. And why would I ever want to spend eternity with a God who was ever like this. Can I read this to you? I said, sure. For my friend on the slides, we need to go to slide 21. Uh, This is Deuteronomy 21. Let's be clear, this is inspired, right? Shane Willard thinks it's inspired. 
You think it's inspired. The leadership here thinks it's inspired. And we affirm that, correct? (laughs) Don't be too excited. We affirm that, correct? (laughs) I'm going to read this in a southern accent. Because I think it just makes it better. (laughs) The word of the Lord. (laughs) When you go out to war against your enemies and the Lord your God delivers them into your hands and you take captives. And if you notice amongst the captives a beautiful woman and you're attracted to her, you can just take her as your wife. Bring her to your home. Have her shave her head. Trim her nails. And put aside the clothes she was wearing when she was captured. After she's lived in your house and mourned her father and mother, who you killed, for a full month, then you may go to her and be your husband, and she shall be your wife. That's called have sex. If you're not pleased with her, in other words, if she's not good at it, let her go wherever she wishes. You must just never sell her or treat her as a slave since you've dishonored her. Can I get an amen? (laughs) Preach it, preacher. Shave those heads. Clip those nails. Make young virgin girls marry foreign warriors they don't love because our God is love. She said, Pastor Shane, could you please help me understand why we would ever want to spend eternity with that God? ever. And she said, let me take your ace of spades away. Because I know what you're going to say. Well, that was the Old Testament. But if God wrote it and God doesn't change, then God is still like that. And even if he did change, here's the question. Is a God who changes trustworthy? What if he changes back? And why would we ever spend eternity with a God who ever thought it was okay to treat women that way? Could you please help me? Is that a good question or a bad question? Don't think too hard. That's a really good, 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 good question. Does she have a right to ask that? We better have an answer. The whole room sat up. And here's what I realized in that moment. I realized that her faith and continuing to journey with Jesus was resting on my answer in that moment and possibly half the room. Right? And I thought... I said to her, I said, who pointed that out to you? 20-year-old girls don't read Deuteronomy 21. She said, no, our philosophy professor pointed it out. He asked us why we would serve a God that ever thought it was a good human ethic to treat people like that. I thought, think about this. I thought, she's not my daughter, but she's somebody's daughter, right? Right? And and how much time and effort and energy and heart do you put into your children to hopefully know that one day they'll be fully devoted followers of Christ? And what would it be worth to you? What would it be worth to you to know that at 85 or 95 or 105, that when your child one day goes on to be with the Lord, that they die a fully devoted follower of Christ? What would that be worth to you? Wouldn't you burn the whole thing to the ground to know that? And here all of that heart, her parents, her church, her youth pastor, her children's pastor, all of that was called into question by a guy who had zero emotionally vested in this person, just trying to cause problems. I said, what did you do? She said, I went to my parents. I asked asked them. They said they'd never seen that before. I said, then what did you do? They said, we went and asked our pastor. 
I said, what did he say? She said, he said, well, God's ways are our ways. Who are we to question God? You know, I'm like, right? And, and before we judge him, what would you have said? Right? We better have a better answer for that. And the answer for that is easy. But you're going to have to come back tomorrow night to hear it. All right? So we're coming back tomorrow night. Let me pray for you. And, um, and we're going to come on back tomorrow night. We're going to start right there. We're going to pick a lot of these things and journey forward. So Lord, let us go tonight with your grace and your peace and your love. May we go tonight with scriptures being bigger, not smaller. May Jesus be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.